Okay, in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, the reason we're finding ourselves in Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8 this morning is it's really kind of a a little bit of a springboard into a discussion that we're going to have here this morning and dealing with the issue of critical race theory. It seems like over the last year, there's been so much tumult and uh, confusion within our society and within our culture that it seems like a lot of things are kind of getting flipped upside down. And well, today we're going to deal with this critical race theory. There's a lot of confusion involved with it, although it's actually kind of simple in its understanding. If you watch the news at all, much of the media surrounding it, there's been all kinds of responses. There was a denial that critical race theory was taking a big stand or having a big impact within society or, or being taught to, to children in, in schools. They went from uh, having a denial of it to a defense of it and then a redefinition of it and just to state that it's just a, a kind of a lens that you look at racial issues through. So there's been kind of a lot of different responses uh, involving this as it's propped up around our society. Uh, make no mistake, uh, to deny it is ridiculous. The whole, you know, Black Lives Matter is a huge platform for critical race theory. Critical race theory is not as new as like Black Lives Matter. It's been around for, for a couple of decades at least. And uh, I think it made some pretty big strides back in about a, a 1989 or so. And so it's not new. It's just uh, all of a sudden got kind of put on steroids lately with how much the culture has been opening up to some of the principles that are found within it. There's been a backlash toward that too. Parents that are getting upset with uh, school boards and in schools around the nation where they're trying to teach the principles of critical race theory within the public school system. And so we're just going to address it here this morning. We're going to look at what critical race theory is. I'm not going to say that all the time. We're going to call it CRT just for its initials for short. And we're going to look at a biblical view of race and race relations. Well, to start with, as we look at the principles, I've had several people in discussions ask me this kind of thing. Well, what exactly is critical race theory anyway? It's, it's wrapped up in a lot of, in those terms, plus also like if, if you hear of like social justice, so the word justice is getting thrown all over the place, which is why we started in Micah today. What is God looking for in us? Justice. Kindness. Humility. We're going to focus on justice. Now, I would agree with John MacArthur. He said justice really doesn't need any adjectives. Justice, when you think about it, it is a core principle. gets applied to a lot of different areas, but it really doesn't need any adjectives to kind of reshape what the word means. And that's happening a lot. There's this idea of social justice, which ends up being uh, not very just, to be honest with you. Uh, and that's why I think we need to address it. This word justice is propping up in a lot of different places, but doesn't always necessarily mean exactly what you're thinking it would mean by the use of the word justice. And that's why it doesn't need any other adjectives. It just needs to stay what it is, justice. That which is just, that which is fair. And we're going to consider that this morning. Now, the principles of of CRT, what are those principles? It kind of bakes down into four different things. And these come from the promoters of, of this ideology. 
The first of the principles that is involved in it is that it just says racism is, is normal. And what they mean by that is not that it's good, but that it's prevalent, that it's everywhere, that it's all over the world. And we see it in every area of life, everything that we do, everywhere you look, racism is involved. That's why I'm sure you've heard the term over and over and over, this idea of systemic racism. They're redefining what racism means. You see, throughout the years, racism has meant that I do something to you based upon just your race. I treat you in an unfavorable way. I oppress you in some way because of your race. And so there's a a racist motive within me, racist actions that I participate in, and then you are damaged by that course of action. That's how we've always defined racism. And that's a good way to deal with it. Because then you can line it up alongside of justice and say that's not just, that's not fair, you can't do that, you can legislate for that, you can, you can make laws about that, which we have, and so you can deal with it in that way. That definition is changing now as to what racism is. It's looked at more of a systemic racism that's just prevalent throughout society. Society's just saturated in it. So our institutions and our organizations within society are so proliferated with racism that really the only thing left to do is to burn those things down. It's not about just making some new laws, reforming. It's about demolishing. It's about tearing down. That's why you see within things like Black Lives Matter, it's not there anymore because they got a lot of negative kickback from it. But early on, if you looked at their website, part of their goal was to dismantle the traditional family, dismantle the the patriotic, biblical, Judeo-Christian family because it's just saturated with racism. It's got to come down. Then it comes up with this idea of this convergence theory. Now, what the convergence theory is really about is it's this idea of whiteness. And you've probably heard about that a little bit lately, too. That your whiteness is a part of your, as a white person, a part of your makeup. It's it's baked into you. And it's baked into, because it's baked into you and and you're part of the majority, then it's baked into our institutions and it's baked into our systems and it's baked into everything that we participate in. And so we have this convergence theory where you're incurably racist, and will only change your course of action if there's also some other way that it benefits you. In other words, you will act less racist if there's some benefit that you get from it. That's what the convergence theory is is all about. And so the first part of it is that racism is everywhere. Second part of it is with the convergence theory that it is baked into you as a white person. You know, this is where it really gets frustrating. Because if you say, well, I don't feel like I'm racist, they say, see, It's so baked into you that you don't even see it. It's so baked into you that you can't even understand it as a white person. And so for you to deny your racism is actually racist in and of itself. In fact, I was was listening to a couple videos on uh, uh, Vody Buckham. He's an interesting man with an interesting past and, and, and a dynamic theologian. And he was describing how actually by not acting racist, you can literally be accused of being racist because of these things. But I'll let you tune into him if you want to go hear that part of it. But this convergence theory says, look, your whiteness is so ingrained in you that you won't even see your own racism. And so it really kind of silences the conversation. It basically comes down to the fact that you're racist. The fact that you don't see it doesn't matter because you can't see it because you're so white. And so 
uh, you just need to be quiet, sit down, and listen to those of us who are impacted by it. And so there's really no defense that you can make for yourself. You just are racist. It's not, it, it's not something that has to be proved. It's something that is assumed to be within you. Well, then uh, it deals with this anti-liberalism. And this isn't meaning liberalism like we usually think of liberalism. When we usually think of liberalism, we usually think of liberal, conservative, right? And that kind of a spectrum. That's not what this is talking about. Liberalism, if you think about it as uh, from liberal arts, that it just defines like the way that we reason. Liberal arts being, you know, degrees that you can earn in college and stuff like that. And, and so critical race theory or CRT says, look, a lot of the ways that we look at life are white. And so they say thing, using things like reason and like the scientific method, well, those are, those are white things. We've made our advances in those areas in dealing with logic and reason and, and that stuff. We've made those advances in our European whiteness. And so that is not the way that black people operate. And that's why you're seeing things like out in Oregon, in at least one school district out there, they deemed mathematics to be racist. Their reasoning that they put forward in that was that in the pursuit of mathematics and testing these kids in mathematics, there's such an emphasis on finding the right answer. And that's a white thing. So they say, look, we can't use reasoning that way. We can't use those white ways of thinking that way. Now, it's kind of ironic, but when we get down to how they define racism, which we'll get down to shortly, when we get down to how they view racism, they view, view it through statistics, which are part of the scientific method, which they reject. So it seems like a, a real contradiction in where they're at. So then, in conclusion, then what do they do? They elevate the voices of the marginalized, and they deal with uh, what they call intersectionality. And so they say, look, in dealing with racism, you should not be looking at maybe the facts of the situation, you need to be looking at the experience of the oppressed. You need to let the oppressed tell their stories. That's where they, they say we're not getting into the rational, rationality. We need to hear the stories of the oppressed. That's how we make grounds against racism, by elevating the voices of the marginalized. And now, with this intersectionality, there's kind of a scale that goes to it. It multiplies against each other. So here's, here's what I mean. If you are a minority, if you're a black person, then you are one of the oppressed class. What if you're a black woman? Well, then you're a part of two classes of oppression because women are oppressed and black people are oppressed. And so you've just doubled your oppression. What if you're a black lesbian? Well, now you've had three things. And so all these things... You just are more and more oppressed the more and more groups that you relate to within this thing. Those are the guiding principles of CRT. It's the fact that racism is everywhere. Whiteness is everywhere. If you don't see the racism, it's because of your whiteness. And you just need to relearn how we think things. We're not going to analyze things by the facts that happened within a case. We're going to listen to the voice of the marginalized and we're going to lift them up. Now, I'll be honest with you, learning some of these details helped me to understand our society a little bit more. Because when I looked at things like Michael Brown, when Michael Brown being stopped for knocking over and beating up the owner of a convenience store, when he's stopped by the police for that, he attacks the police officer, goes for his gun, Michael Brown ends up shot, and somehow Michael Brown is a martyr. 
And I'm looking at the thing and I'm saying, what am I missing? What am I missing? He, he did something illegal. He should be arrested for that. When they went to arrest him, he attacked the police officer. actually had his hand on the officer's gun. I figure if I put my hand on an officer's gun, I'm going to get what I get. And I think he did too. And so, um, what am I missing? Where's the racism? But see, critical theory is saying, no, 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 you don't cipher through the details. Another black person was killed by a police officer. Let's listen to the black people. Let's listen to the marginalized of the society. You don't wade through the evidence of the case. And so that's, that's what critical race theory is all about. That, our, that it's so ingrained in our system that it's not, it's not about whether you had malice in your heart toward that, people, that person at the time. It's, a, it's just a matter of that it's just baked into you and it's baked into the system that you live in. And so it just is there and you can't deny it. Even if you don't see it, it's just because it's what you are. Well, then how does this get carried forth? What's the process of CRT? Well, the process of CRT begin boils down to about four different steps. The first step is that you need to identify the disadvantaged groups. And notice groups. Groups is a very important word in that. You've got to identify disadvantaged groups because you're not looking at individuals, you're looking at groups. And so if you're part of a group that is considered disadvantaged, then it needs to be taken care of. And the, and the goal, the goal of this is redistribution. They're saying, look, there's such a racism baked into our system that we need to redistribute. We need to redistribute power and we need to redistribute wealth. And that's why you heard some of the things like, for example, during Barack Obama's administration, he was talking about how can we take money from the suburbs and pipe it back to the cities? Do you remember that? I remember him focusing on that. And he was dealing with, he said, because you have people in the cities and they're working their way when they get up to a certain level of income where they can afford to live in a nicer place for their family, they move out to the suburbs. Well, you just took that higher income, taxable income, out of the cities and moved it to the suburbs. We need their money back in the cities. Why? Because in the cities is where you deal with more of the racial issues and the tumult. And so they started looking through how can we structure things to get the tax the people in the suburbs to spend down in the cities. And that's the, that's the idea. They need to identify the groups that are being disadvantaged. And it's the same thing we just saw recently with, uh, with Biden in one of the COVID relief packages. COVID relief to farmers. But not every farmer. Not even farmers based on your uh, how much COVID was impacting you. Which I wouldn't think farmers would be all that impacted. They're in tractors by themselves, covid But at any rate, I don't understand all of it, I'm sure. But uh, it was to disadvantage farmers. In other words, it was a racial program that was put together. If you're a black farmer, you're going to get subsidies. If you're a white farmer, then you you can lump it. But uh, that's just the way it was going. So you're going to identify. And now here's, here's that ironic part. How do you identify disadvantaged parts of the culture? Through statistics. Which groups are not doing as well as other groups in various different ways? Now, then what you have to do is you have to assess group outcomes. And that's another thing that's big on this. Is it's focused on outcomes 
not behaviors. It's focused on outcomes, not behaviors. You see, back in the days of desegregation, we could focus on racism easily. It was behaviors. You're putting black kids in black schools and white kids in white schools. You can't do that anymore. You're making, you have a black drinking fountain and a white drinking fountain. You can't do that anymore. There's a black section of the bus, a black section of the restaurant, white. You can't do that anymore. Those were easy, those were easy to do. But you see, now race is not being defined by behaviors anymore. It's being defined by outcomes. Black kids aren't doing as well on their SAT school scores as the white kids are, so education is racist. Black people are being convicted in violent crimes more than white people, so the justice system is racist. It's all focused on outcomes rather than specific behaviors. Well, then after doing that, after you identify the disadvantaged group, you assess the outcomes, which again is part of the scientific method, then you assign blame. If you have people that are oppressed, you have to have people that are oppressing. The word demands it. And so, who are the oppressors? White, male, heterosexual, cisgender, and the list goes on. But that's who the oppressor is. Because that's the majority. And so now that we've established blame, then the last part is redistribute power and resources to address those grievances. Find ways to take the power away from the oppressor and give it to the people that are oppressed. And that very much, it divides humanity into those two camps. You're either part of the oppression or you're part of being oppressed. You're one or the other. And that's why you see people, it's amazing to me over the last year, how many people I've seen claim to be victims that are so not victims. Oprah Winfrey has played the victim card on a number of occasions. She's probably the richest woman in America and probably the most influential woman in America. And to be honest with you, that's one of the things that I keep thinking, are we really, can we really be systemically racist, racist when people like Oprah, Oprah Winfrey can be so successful? Other people that I've seen play the victim cards, Michelle Obama. For crying out loud, we put you in the White House, this nation did. And I was listening to a thing uh, that she was being interviewed on, and she was talking about how it's, it's just so horrible that every time her daughters leave the home, she has to fear for their lives. Because of, not because of crime that's out there, but because of the police officers. And I was like, are you kidding me? That is really... It's just got to be a total lie, doesn't it? There's no way she's really afraid for her daughter's lives every time they leave the home. Can it be true? If she really is afraid of that, then to be, she's a crazy person. Because the statistics, just do, they're just not there. They're just not there. And so I just, I just, I don't understand. But at any rate, that's what CRT is. CRT is 
looking at racism as a systemic thing. It's baked into the system. You can't even see it because you're so white and, and uh, I can't see it because I'm so white. And, and um, then so what we need to do is we need to forsake these white ways of looking at things through the scientific method and other things, even though they're going to use the scientific method to try to, try to argue for it. But um, we're, we're supposed to overlook those things, get away from uh, focusing on the one right answer in math, like there's more than one, and, uh, and those kind of things. And what we need to do is we need to identify the marginalized groups. We need to give them a voice, which I do think we need to hear their voices. We need to hear all voices. But... Uh, we need to identify the marginalized groups and we need to begin to redistribute the power from the people that are oppressed or from the people that are oppressing to give it to the people that are oppressed. That, in a nutshell, is critical race theory. Now, uh, I'll be straight up, straight up with you. I'm not in. I'm just so not in. And I'm sure you've already got that by now. And here's the reasons, reasons that I'm not in. The reasons I'm not in is, one... Believability. Believability. You see, I've been told for quite a while now that the, but that the black community is so afraid of the police officers because of the police officers would do them harm in this system that is built upon racism. And to be honest, I feel like saying, who do I believe? You or my lion eyes? Because... Now, we don't have a lot of races, races within our community. We don't have a lot of ethnicities within our community. I don't harbor any hard feelings towards any of them. In fact, one of the things I've always been fascinated with is the progress of dealing with racism within our society. I, I, I like to watch movies and documentaries that are true to life that go through some of the more racist times in our nation. Because I love seeing justice triumph over racism. And I have not so much here because there aren't that many around of other ethnicities. But when I lived in Seattle, I had black friends and I, and I worked among black co-workers. And I never thought any different of them than I did my white friends and my white co-workers. But you know, of the black people that I knew, they weren't afraid I never once heard one of them say that they were afraid that uh, just be going about their business and, and some police officer was going to do them harm. Never once. And when I, I'm being removed from it now because of where I live, but, but what I see on TV and the news, I still don't see that fear. They claim that the black community has to fear the police officers that are policing it. And there's a lot of things that stand out in my mind about that that I just can't accept it. One is a lot of those police officers are themselves minority individuals. But secondly, there doesn't seem to be any appearance of fear. I've seen protests over the last year that have burned down a police precinct. More than one, actually. I've seen black people dancing on top of cop cars and throwing things at police officers and getting in their face and screaming at police officers. This is not how afraid people act toward the people that they're afraid of. They, they don't run from them. They film them. And so I just, I just the believability is not there for me. I can't, I can't see it. Secondly, is this idea of uh, people in leadership, people of color in leadership. 
One of the things I've noticed over the last year when we see people interviewed, uh, police chiefs and heads of police departments, mayors, governors, when we see people interviewed on maybe uh, a police shooting that happened or riots that are taking place, you know what, predominantly the leadership that I've seen being interviewed on the news has been people of color. And so that's one other thing that has stood out to me is if so many minorities are within leadership positions and why, why is the system racist? I don't know why they would do that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, another one is uh, weak examples. Weak examples. I think I spelled it wrong. I spelled it like days of the week. But um, and that's, uh, this one is the one that's really plagued my mind. As I mentioned with Michael Brown, I kept thinking, uh, is there something I'm missing here? I waited for facts to unfold. Didn't seem like I was missing anything. Um, people were calling it racism when it just looked like justice taking place uh, in, a, in a bad situation. I think Michael Brown was a young man that made a lot of bad decisions that all culminated in a very bad decision. And that's the way it, that's the way it came down. It doesn't seem racist to me at all. I didn't see any motivation for racism within the police officer or anything else. But what are the examples that we've been given? We've been given the examples of Michael Brown, George Floyd, others. And it seems like every example, the police have been called in because there's domestic violence, because somebody was robbed at gunpoint, because somebody was sexually abused, because somebody's passing counterfeit money. The, the police have been called in on these people and if you later if you dig up if you can find what the record is on the individual doing it there's a usually a long list of things going ahead of them and the people and, I, and I've thought all the way through this thing as I've tried to look at it from both sides and I've thought okay if there's an example where somebody didn't just rob a convenience store didn't just beat up or abuse a woman didn't just pass a counterfeit bill, if, there, if there's one instance that happened where the police didn't need to be called in, then give me that example. Because surely that's the examples they would give you if they had them. But I haven't seen, I can't think of a one. And so it just, it just doesn't ring true to me then. Uh, not only that, but they're inconsistent. They're inconsistent because they say we want to measure the outcomes. We want to measure the outcomes and see who isn't participating, who isn't doing well. But they only want to measure the outcomes on things that go one direction. Right? And that's one thing that stood out to me as well, is that there seems to be a huge amount of inconsistency because they're measuring things like, okay, the black kids aren't doing as good maybe in the SAT scores that we mentioned earlier, or maybe they're not doing as good on the math scores, so we're going to identify math as racist and learn to think about things from a different perspective. Um, those kind of things, they, they don't go the other way. How come, you know, when I think of like the NBA, the NBA, who's dominant within, in the NBA? Black people. Black people make up 14% of the society. So if we're going to go by outcomes, and outcomes need to be equal, there needs to be equity, then, then uh, the NBA should be 14% black people. How come nobody's raising an issue about the systemic racism within the NBA because there's not enough Hispanics? 
You see, the principles that they're based on are not carried out consistently across society, so that makes me question the whole thing as well. Next, also laws. The laws that we have, racism, very little legal racism within our community, within our society. There used to be a lot more. But racism has been wiped out of our legal system in this way. All those things like that we mentioned earlier about like the white and black drinking fountains, white and black schools, white and black this and that, all those things, they're all illegal now. All, all these laws have been put in place to make racism illegal. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I've, I've come across it. I've, I've seen people exercising racism, racist behavior. But our society, our system has made it illegal for you to exercise racist behavior. So when I look at the laws, I think, now there is, there is one way that racism is legal within our society. But all the ways that I can think of where racism is legal within our society is if it favors the minority. You realize in the minority, in America, we have black colleges. Not because blacks have to stay separate from whites, go to that one, but because they just want to have all black colleges. Now, can you have an all white college? I don't mean, are there colleges that are majority white? There's a vast many of them. But I don't believe you're allowed to have one. That's against the law. Um, racism is applied to different things like the job market. You know, I know an, I know an individual that has uh, tried to get a, a position, a governmental position, on a few different occasions, and they're very, very qualified both in education and years of experience. And they've been shot down. And I was talking to them recently, and they said, I finally asked. I'm doing good on my tests. I have the proper education. I have a lot of background in this field. Why am I not making it? And you know what they were told? They were told two things. Your race and your gender. Those two things. I remember when I was in high school. When I was in high school, we went to community college because they had a thing where you could go to high school part of the day, college part of the day, and you could learn a trade at the at the Votech. And so you could get into like automobile, working on automobiles, that kind of stuff, airplanes, different things like that. And I, we were there and we were learning about radio broadcasting. And I remember I asked the guy, I said, uh, what kind of jobs are available in this uh, occupation? And he points at me and he says, you, don't bother. Find something else to do. He pointed to somebody standing next to me. He said, her, she can write her ticket. She can go wherever she wants. She was a Hispanic female. A friend of mine that I was in class with. And so, you see, we've, and I'm not even arguing that there aren't some things that need to be done like that to make the playing field maybe a little bit more level. Different conversation, different time. But our laws are completely against racism within our country. Unless you want to turn it and favor it toward the minority, then it does exist. And then lastly, this equality versus equity. 
And this is where you get to kind of the heart of this critical race theory. They say it's not about... Equality is about your behavior toward other people. You have malice in your heart toward them because of their race and you treat them badly because of it. Equity is about the outcome. If they don't succeed, if they don't do as well as you, then it's racist. That's the only reason that they could have not done as well as you. Now, I think... uh, uh, Bodhi Vokum, Vokum, I might be pronouncing his name wrong. Um, he gave a great analogy that helped me to see this clearly. He said, equality is a hundred yard dash. You line everybody up on the end. There's a starting line. There's a finish line. You all have equal opportunity to reach the other end. That's a hundred yard dash. That's equality. He said, equity, equity is you test each runner to see how fast they are, and then you stagger the starting lines so that they, when they all take off at the same time, they all reach the finish line at the same time. That's equity. Well, you know what? Equity does not exist in nature. Right? Some people are born taller than... They're going to be taller than others. Some people are going to be smarter than others. Some people are going to be are going to live longer than others. Some people are going to be handicapped for one reason or another. So there's, There just really is no such thing as an equity like that. But that's the thing is that CRT is so focused on outcomes, not behaviors. And so if the outcome of somebody else doesn't do as well as you, it's not because you're just better at something than they are. It's because of racism. And so, you know what, they really deserve that position more than you, so let's put them into it instead of you. And so that's, that's why I'm not in favor of CRT. Because CRT, under the guise of racism, or of going against racism, is actually racist in itself. You see, I've stood up here through CRT and I've told you that you, some things are beyond your understanding because you're white. Now, if I said that and it was because you were black, oh boy, would that be racist. It's no less racist to say it because you're white or because you're any other race. For somebody to stand up and say, this is beyond your ability to grasp because of the race that you are, is a racist statement. To treat people and say, we're going to... We're going to, you got two people competing for something over here. We're going to give it to this one automatically because of their race. That is racist behavior. That's what a lot of lawsuits in our days with the, with the educational system are based on because if you got qualified students coming in trying to get into a university, it's no longer just graded by grade point average and measurable things like that. Somebody with a disadvantaged race gets to go in where somebody with a higher grade point average often is not accepted because there's not room for you. And so there's lots of uh, lawsuits in our Ivy League schools over just that kind of thing. And you know what? In those kind of things, it seems like justice is very easily measurable. And if you're going to focus on these outcomes and you're going to neglect justice for the case uh, for your insistence upon racism, I think Martin Luther King Jr. said it very well. He said he dreamed... Of a day, he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation 
where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's the target that we need to be aimed at. You see, a lot of these things, when you look back over the last several years, a lot of these hyped up cases and things like that where there's such a cry for racism and they're not looking at the details of the case, they're not looking at the justice in the individual situation, but rather they're crying racist within the broad category. Well, you can't have a broad category unless you have solid individual situations that make it up. And so justice is what we lose. Now, finally, let's get to this. A biblical understanding then. What is a biblical understanding of race? Because, you know, that's one thing I love about the Word of God. It's practical. It's true. And it's hopeful. It's hopeful. You know, within CRT, there's really not a lot of hope. Because, yeah, there's, there's, there's maybe that, that they say, we're going to redistribute. We're going to take power from this group, give it to that group. We're going to take resources from this group, give it to that group. Um, because there's no rightly, right reason that they should have it. Just because theirs doesn't mean it should be theirs. And so we're going to do that. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't ever get rid of the racism. Like I said, racism is everywhere. According through their lens, through their eyes. And so there's always this racism, this systemic racism baked into the pie. But you know what? In the Word of God, there's hope. The Word of God takes enemies and makes them friends. The Word of God reconciles people to God and people to people. And that's what we get to participate in if we get a good biblical understanding of race. The biblical understanding of race involves three elements I'd like to focus on. The first one is creation. In creation, we look back and and God made Adam and God made Eve. And from that populated the entire world. He told them to go out and be fruitful, multiply and fill up the earth. And they did just that. And so when we look at the issue of race, how, how does the issue of race, what does the Bible have to say about the issue of race? Well, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20 also says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. She's the mother of all living. So the Bible makes it very clear that all of us descended from one couple, Adam and Eve, two people came together, became one, and from that, all people. Then it says a little later, the world was wiped out with a flood. And then you have Noah, his wife, his three sons, their three wives. So it's again, traces all back to... So all of us can trace our lineage. Well, we have the ability. Maybe Ancestry.com. I don't think they can get all the way back to Noah yet. Although we did find out something kind of cool in Lisa's family recently. Her mom, we got her Ancestry.com for uh, Christmas last year. And she's been having fun looking up articles and all kinds of interesting things on, our, on their family. And she found that she is uh, kind of shirt tail relative of uh, Frederick Douglass. One of her cousins married Fred, Frederick Douglass. And so that was kind of a cool thing to find out. But it was a, definitely a 
like a fifth cousin, four times removed, or fourth cousin, five times removed, or something like that. But, but you know, I was reading another thing uh, through genetics this last week, or on genetics, and they were talking about a guy that claimed that he was related to Charlemagne. And then a, a geneticist, or a historian, I think it was actually, he said, you know what, actually probably almost everybody's related to Charlemagne in one way or another. They said, once you get 800, 1,000 years into history, if you trace the gene pools back, the family trees back, we all are related through people that are much closer in time to us than we would have thought that we would be. Well, the Bible makes it clear that we are related for, through Adam and Eve, through Noah and his family. And so what does that have to say about racism? Oh, and it's not only the Bible, by the way. Also, the Genome Project Science also genetically backs this up, that we are all from the same common ancestor because our gene pool is, is it's, we're all part of the same gene pool. And so what does that say? What does the Bible t- tell us then about the race issue? I really don't like the word race. You know why? Because we are the human race. That's what we are. Some of us have lighter skin. Some of us have more melatonin than others. Some have less. Some have darker skin. Some have blue eyes. Some have brown eyes. Some have different facial structure features or whatever. We're all part of the human race. We're all related to some extent. At some point, we're all distant relatives. So there's one race. Now, there's a lot of ethnicities within that race, but there are no races. We're all related. And so, what does that do to racism? Well, then that should go out the window. There should be no racism because there are no races. There's only one, and it's us. We're all part of the same thing. We're all part of humanity. Well, why is there that differences that we see then? Why do we have... Well, you've got to look at history. That's the second part. You've got to look at history. What happened after the flood? God told them to spread out and fill up the earth. They didn't do it. They said, let's hold together. God brought the judgment of the Tower of Babel where He confused their languages so that they would spread out on their own. And when they did that, you just took the gene pool and you divided it up. And so you know what's going to happen? Since you just broke up the gene pool where the gene pool is not going to be circulating all the time, you're going to have dominant characteristics that are going to stand out, start to stand out in each group. Uh, sometimes it confuses us, but if you just think of it in reverse, it's very easy to understand. If you take a very dark person and a very light person and they form a family, they get married and have a kid, what are their kids going to look like? Kind of somewhere in the middle usually? Not always, but usually? Well, the same thing happens if you have a, a diversity within the gene pool and then you segregate that gene pool, then you're going to have dominant characteristics start to show up in those things. Whereas if you start to bring all that pool back together, those dominant characteristics are going to start to fade out. And you know what? Skin color is such a small segment of our genetic makeup. You realize that any two people in the, any two people in the world, the amount of genetic difference that you might have from any other person in the world is about 0.2%. So there's, you're genetically about the same as everybody else. 0.2% is all, 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 all the difference you are from... You realize there's a lot of genetic information going on inside of you. Very little of it has to do with what your skin color is and the things that we see as dominant. In fact, if you were to take those genetic characteristics that we associate with race, those, what percentage of our genetic makeup are those? Those are 0.012% of our genetic makeup. 
And so the things that we classify race on have hardly anything to do with who you are as a person. Very small difference among us. In fact, you can have a room full of people and you may have a white person that has more genetically in common with a black person than he does the other white person that's sitting next to him. That's how little of a difference it makes. You know, it's kind of interesting. I looked up years ago, uh, or quite a while back on the, on the Internet. I was like, uh, well, if there's, a, if there's that, then what about, you know, are there black people that have a white kid or white people that have a black kid, that kind of thing that you can see within families genetically even. And there is. There is. There's a few pictures that I have for us here. Uh, this is a family. These are all, those are the mom and the dad of all those kids. And most of the kids, is a, you know, very dark mom and dad. Uh, two of the kids very dark. One of the one of the children very very light. But also all that is their mom. That is their dad. Um, same thing with this one. Two uh, very medium toned uh, people. And if their kids, their twin little little girls there. One pretty dark. One pretty light. Right. Same mom. Same dad. Shared the same womb. At the same time even. And come out that different. And. Um, I was kind of wondering, actually, I couldn't find where this came from. I don't know if there's a picture. Same two girls, a little bit older, but obviously twin girls, very much look alike, but the skin color, very different. And then uh, this one went the other way as well. Two very uh, white parents and a very dark child came from their relationship together, and they confirmed that, uh, it was, that he was the father and she is the mother uh, biologically as well. And so how do we understand this thing? Well, the gene pool gets divided up. When we look at creation, we're all part of one human race. Well, why do we have these differences that seem so visible? They're actually a very small part of our genetic makeup. And if you divide up the population, segregate the groups, that's what's going to happen. And so uh, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. Now, here's the thing. What is God's intent in doing this? He divides them up to get them to spread out like he wanted to. And then what's the very next thing that he did? He gave the promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great family, turn you into a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. So it's still going to reach out. Even though the the people are broken up and segregated all over the face of the earth at this point, God picks one man and says, this is how I'm going to reach back out to the entire world, Abraham. And he tells us about that in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so if we look at creation, we see that we're all one race, if we look at history, we understand why we have the differences that we do. And, and we also see God's intent on despite our differences, which are minimal, and bring, being a blessing to the entire world, which he was through Jesus Christ, which is what brings us to our last point, which is the gospel. The gospel. Because in the gospel, we find a unity in Jesus Christ. We find a, a tearing down of the walls that divide us. We, tie, we find a, a dismantling of the hostility. And this is where I really have a problem with that critical race theory. Critical race theory builds the hostility. It builds the animosity. Because it's constantly dividing people into oppressors and oppressed. The Gospel comes in and wipes out the animosity by making the two friends. 
in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, it says, For, of Christ, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Colossians says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And the very last passage I'd like to share with us is in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the Gospel tears down those walls. It breaks down that hostility. Throughout those passages, He kept focusing on taking the two and making them one tearing down the walls, tearing down the hostility, one body, making them one body together, bringing peace so that those who are afar have peace, those who are near have peace. Everybody gets brought in to the peace of God. So Christian, if you behave in a racist way, you're sinning against God in a great way. If we perform harmful actions and have harmful attitudes against somebody else of a different race, then you're denying the faith that you represent. Because we're all part of the human race, the Bible teaches us. We're all part of mankind and all made in His image. The light no more or no less than the dark. For us to behave in a racist way is unconscionable. And it's against the gospel. 
But at the same time, neither are you just racist to your core. Neither should you be condemned as racist without evaluating your actions and attitudes and proving that there is something malicious there. That is false. And neither is our country racist and systemically so because it's contained race in its background. But our country was founded on solid documents that even though there was some hypocrisy in the practice, stated that mankind was created equal. And so we had these inalienable rights. From that time forward, we've been striving to perfect those documents and to make sure that our laws and our policies rid us of the sin of racism and to stomp those things out. And I think that it's just wrong to insist that it's so grained into our system where you can't find a law that can be accurately described as racist. When you find the leadership and positions that are people of minority groups themselves, and this whole concept of redefining it based on an equity rather than an equality, what it will do, well, what it is beginning to do, and what it will do much worse, is it will support racist behaviors because they're fighting against racial inequities. And so they will actually be end up guilty of committing the same sin that they claim to be fighting against. And so we must stand with God's justice. A justice that, as Martin Luther King says, evaluates us by our character, evaluates us by our actions and our motives.